And I know we're getting a little bit of a late start, so I cut my notes down, okay? Someone said, oh, man, you were quick on that, amen. You, she was like, uh, But this chapter of Genesis, I broke down into two separate uh, spacings. We're going to, tonight we're going to deal with Genesis 14, 1 through 16, okay? Genesis 14, verses 1 through 16. And this is dealing with Lot, the war that goes on between six kings against five kings, and Lot gets captured, and Abram goes and rescues him. Amen? So I'm going to read, uh, starting at verse 1. I guess I'll wait for that Bible. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Erak, king of Elazar, and Kador Lamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Gion, or Goim, excuse me, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, uh, king of Gomorrah, Shanib, king of Adama, and Shibor, uh, Shimber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served the Ketelamor king, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled, and in the Fourteenth year, Ketelamor, excuse me, and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphimi in Ashtoreth, Kenim, and the Zuzim of Ham and the Emim of Shavava, Karathim, and the Horatites in their hill country of Syrah as far as El Paran and the borders of the wilderness. They then turned back and came to Enip, Enip, Enimish Pat, that is Kedesh, and defeated all the countries of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adama, and the king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined the battle in the valley of Siddam with Kedar Lamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, uh, Aphrael, king of Shinar, Arach, Aroch, king of Elash, uh, Ella, Elazar, excuse me. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of butman pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all of their provisions, and went their way. They all took they also took Lot, the son of Abraham. Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped 
came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anur. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Habah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and brought back also his kins kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now, this is a quick, very concise drawing out of a battle. Now, these kings that came and defeated the local kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, at, at the beginning, we have Amaphrel, Ariach, Kedar Lamor, uh, Tidal, and then an unknown king of Bura. okay? These five kings go to war against four kings, right? What are you smiling about? My pronunciations? Oh. Oh, okay. I'm like, look, even if you even if you go and Google this, which I did, okay, Keda Lamor is the proper pronunciation, but it's really hard when you see CH to say cut, okay, like Keda. I'm like, it doesn't look like Ked. I wanted to say cheddar, okay? I didn't know, okay? But <laughs> it, it was really difficult. And I actually tried to Google a lot of these names and get the pronunciation where I could hear it, not just not just reading it, you know what I mean? I even turned on my Bible app so the Bible app would read it to me, and it still doesn't help, okay? I mean, like... Stumbling? observation. Uh, the first observation that I want to make is apparently this fertile ground that Lot chose to live in was also attracting other people, okay? And these kings were from the east, okay? These kings are uh, part of uh, a group of kings that are coming from the east, okay? Uh, let's look at where they're from, okay? Uh, first is uh, Shinar and Elam. Um, uh, what's the other one? Tidal. Uh, it's Tidal is from Goim. Uh, Bura. Uh, when, there's another one I'm missing. Uh, Elish, Elazar. This. All these towns. Nobody really knows where they are now. Okay, but they're almost all of them. The way that they're told to that they came into the country, they came from the east. So we're assuming that these towns are over near the east, okay? Uh, they don't know exactly where these, because what we have here are not kings of whole countries, right? They're kings over 
Well, and you notice that each city has its own king, okay? We, it's tribal kingships at this point, you know what I mean? You have kings that, a guy that goes to Sodom and he's the king of Sodom, okay? And he's probably the king of Sodom and all the little bit of area around Sodom, right? But he's not a king over all of Moab, right? He's just a king of Sodom. Right. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. They, they, they were little village uh, kingdoms, and that's about it. Little fiefdoms of their own, right? Uh, so these these kings from the east see the Jordan River Valley, which is where uh, Lot settles. Right? They see this as a fertile place to come and get crops. A lot of reasons that they'd want to go here and overtake these kings. Number one, this is a very fertile place. They can get food for their people. They can set up trade routes to other places in Egypt, right? And they can have a way to march armies straight to places in the south where they'd want to go and overtake other people, right? So these are just obvious ways of why this would be. Uh, the second thing that I noticed was they call the, the place the Salt Sea. So we all know where this is, right? The Dead Sea, right? Because Sodom and Gomorrah are on the east side of the Dead Sea towards the south, right? So this is the place that Lot settled. Uh, verse 4, it speaks really quickly of them rebelling in the 13th year. So for 12 years, they were serving these uh, kings, okay? For 12 years, they were serving a specific king, this Keda Lamor, right? That's what it says, right? It says in verse uh, 4, 12 years they had served Keda Lamor, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. I want to talk a little bit about what this rebellion would have kind of entailed. Number one, it says that they served the king, Kettle Amor, for 12 years. What does this service look like? Well, number one, they're going to take a portion of their annual wealth and they're going to give it away to them, right? That's what happens when you're serving another king, right? So that, that king, when you harvest crops, you got to set aside some for him. When you uh, bring in your goats and sheep to kill or to sell, whatever you make, you got to give the king a portion of, right? So they're serving him in that capacity. What else they might have been doing is supporting him with political or military campaigns, right? Whatever uh, propositions or trade stuff that this king would want to do, they're going to have to support. Whatever new laws this king comes up with for tax or, or, or water or, or anything, they're going to have to support that political agenda. And 
if other people around him are going to try to make war against this kettle of war, they have to go and help fight, right? That's part of being serviced to another king. So Kettle Amor was a high king, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the, the other two kings that were with them were serving them, right? And then they rebelled, which more than likely is the cause of them coming in to wipe them out, right? They're like, no, you're not going to rebel, right? Uh, the second thing that I noticed in this second section here was that Kettle Amore immediately quells this little rebellion. He's like, do you realize that you little, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and these other two little towns, you guys ain't no match for us, right? So these guys go to war, and I don't know why this is so important, but they wrote it down. So the terrain was obviously pretty dangerous, okay? It was full of Butman pits. It's like tar pits, right? And there's people falling in these tar pits. When these five kings came in and swept down there, the, the people started fleeing. And when they were fleeing, they were falling into these tar pits. That's what it says, right? Some of them fell in the tar pits. That's what Butman is. It's tar. It's like pitch. Right? Uh, anyway, they fall in these uh, pits and they defeat pretty easily, it seems like, these four kings. Okay? Now, why is this so important in this story? Because I'm going to show you really quickly that these four kings, four kings, four towns, okay? There were four towns. Let's count. I want to. I want to go back and uh, let's look. The kings that were against them: the king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, the king of Adama, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. That is Zoar went out and joined battle in the valley of Sidon, and Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Afro, king of Shinar, and Erach, king of Elish. Four kings against five. So the four kings were facing five armies from the surrounding native area. But these four kings defeated all five of these towns. Right? That's what it reads. It's exactly what we just read. Right? Because it leaves off the Burra didn't fight in this battle. Right? It says it right there. Burra, right here in verse 8. The kings of Sodom, the kings of Gomorrah, the king of Adama, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. That's five, right? One, two, three, four, five. And then it says, Chedorlaomer, excuse me, Tidal, Aphromel, and Erach. That's four. So four of the opposing kings are defeating five of the native kings in battle right here. These four kings obviously had enough uh, tactical advantage enough army to defeat five other cities and their armies, okay? This is very important in the story because Abram takes 318 men and defeats all of them by himself. <laughs> That's important, right? Like suddenly you're like, hold on a minute. 
Five kings couldn't defeat these four kings, but Abram can. Now, it almost makes me wonder how many people are in these other armies, okay? I'm like, did they only have like 40 people each or something? What happened here, right? <laughs> they, they obviously had less people than Abram had, okay? Or they weren't trained very well, right? So, but, but let's also understand that the dynamic here is that maybe they weren't trained very well. Maybe they, because we know that the, the, the inhabitants of Sodom were wicked, right? We know that they were wicked people. They were evil in God's sight. We've already read this, right? So understanding that their life may be tied up in, you know, drinking or carousing or whatever other sin might interest them, right? We know the sin of Sodom, so huh, just think, you know, I don't want to say it out loud, just little ears, but <laughs> they were doing all kinds of things rather than training for war, right? So maybe they weren't well trained, but needless to say, they were defeated, and when they uh, went to flee, when they went to retreat, they were falling in these pits. So obviously, uh, A, they weren't very smart. Uh, don't run there. Don't run there, right? Like, open your eyes when you're running. Don't run blindly, right? <laughs> Could be. Could be. The reality, though, is that we see a stark difference, number one, in both Abraham's strategy and Abraham's willingness to go after them, right? See, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other kings just met in this one little battle here to try to, oh, we'll, we all get together and we'll defeat them, right? Can you, can you imagine their conversation? There's five of us cities. There's five of us kings. We got, you know, oh, let's go down there. We can do this, right? And then all of a sudden they get their behinds whooped. Right? And I'm sure while they're running away and falling in pits, they're going, oh no, this turned out real bad. What happened? Well, there's a lot of things that can be said here. But the very fact that Sodom and Gomorrah and these other towns were unaware <laughs> that this was going to happen or something. Like, what did they think was going to happen when they rebelled, okay? It, it uses the word rebelled, okay? That's create an uprising, right? So this is one of those moments where we do what Jesus said. Which king, before he goes and makes war, doesn't first sit and count the cost, whether he can meet the one that comes at him with 20,000 and he's only got 10,000, right? So they could have sent out a delegation and asked for terms of peace, but they didn't. And I think it probably has to do with their wickedness and the fact that they were ready to do evil anyway. Amen? Now, I can, that's all speculation, okay? That has nothing, that, there's no way that I can make that case and make it stick. I'm not trying to. Okay, uh, these five kings failed to repel these eastern kings. 
The terrain seemingly was so dangerous that the invading the, the, the terrain was so much uh, was seemingly as dangerous as the invading army as they were falling in these pits as they were fleeing. Now, it makes a point to say that the, these four kings plunder Sodom and Gomorrah of all its possessions and all of its provisions. Now, the King James says it a little bit different, so I want to give you what the King James says here because I want to tell you that these words mean the same thing, but it, it sounds different, okay? So, verse, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. Now, in this context, the word goods means anything that isn't food, and victuals means everything that is food, okay? Just to let you know. <laughs> because sometimes we're like, what does that mean, victuals? I'm like, I wouldn't have knew, right? Ten years ago, I wouldn't have known that at all. Okay, I'm like, victuals? What in the world? I'd have had to Google it. I'm not sure. They had Google ten years ago, didn't they? I don't remember, I'm old. Anyway, the, the possessions, in the ESV it says possessions and provisions. Possessions are things that you don't necessarily have to have, like, you know, gold and silver or, you know, fine china or whatever. And then the provisions are the things you do need, food, water, you know, cattle, whatever else you took with you, okay? But they took it all. They didn't just take their food. They took all their possessions too, okay? And then it tells you in verse 12, they took Lot and all his possessions as well, okay? Now, it's interesting, this section, okay? And I want to settle on one part of verse 12 here. It says, Abram, oh, excuse me, I'm in verse thir or chapter 13. Uh, right here it says, they took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. Now, these people just grabbed this stuff and left, okay? They didn't just sit there. They grabbed it and left. Now, what I find interesting is the last chapter we saw Lot just pitching his tent towards Sodom, right? All of a sudden in this chapter, Lot isn't just pitching his tent towards Sodom, he's in Sodom, okay? And I want to make a point here that anytime that you just, uh, I'm going to say this really nicely, anytime that you just tease with going towards a sin can be very costly because sin has a way of just, you don't intend to go that far, you don't intend it to do this, you never intend to, to go into that hole, right? You never intend to get into that ditch. But it's like being on the side of the road. There's a point at which once your wheel gets off the curb, that you're in very real danger of going in the ditch and not being able to get back out. Amen? And Lot seems to have crossed this line with pitching his tent towards Sodom his tires have went off the road, and he is now 
in Sodom. In the very place that God said in the last chapter that the men of Sodom were wicked, evil in his sight. Amen? And this is Lot's life. He's living it in the midst of wicked men. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you this as a church. We must be in the world, but we must not be of the world. Amen? And yes, I realize that we live in a wicked, sinful world that we can't escape from, which is all the more reason we need each other. Amen? Did, did Lot need Abram? Yeah. Yeah, Lot needed Abram. Amen? I want you to notice that later on, Lot's still with Abram when Abram gets circumcised. <laughs> right? He's still there. He gets circumcised with Abram. Why? Because right now, Lot is doing a lot like a lot of Christians are. He's teasing with the world. He's toying with it. He's like, oh, it's, it, this ain't that bad, but here he is. When all this stuff breaks loose in the world and he's over there by himself. A lot of Christians right now feel like they're all by themselves. They might be trapped. There's a lot of believers right now that are trapped in all kinds of crazy nonsense. It's up to us to go get them. That's where I'm going with this, okay? The realities of this story lead back to a reality that, that Cain brought up that I want to bring up towards the end of this. But I want to get back to my notes before I do. So he was dwelling in Sodom. Verse 13 through 16, we see Abram's story, right? Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now this is the first time Abram is called a Hebrew. Okay, this is the first time anybody in this lineage is called a Hebrew. Okay, this is the first time the term comes up, Hebrew. You want to know when it was first said? Right here. Okay? It's the first time he's been called a Hebrew. Okay? Also, Abram has trained men. This is how we as Christians need to undertake our lives. Okay? We need to be studying God's word. We need to be living our spiritual lives to such a degree that when trouble comes, we don't have to act like untrained men like the Sodom and Gomorrah kings obviously were. Okay? We can have the wisdom to act as Abram who had trained men. And that's a big thing for our church. Uh, and I love you ladies, okay? Don't get me wrong. But we need more men to step up and be leaders in their homes, in the, in the church, in the workplace. I mean, there's a whole lot of men out there trying to, you know, win a career. But they're not living for God. And they're not representing Christ. And they're not representing what it means to be a godly man today. Amen? Now, for you ladies, this doesn't change your responsibilities either we need everybody trained amen we need to be all of us need to be equipped right what's the pastor for to help build up the body of christ 
and equip the saints, that's men, women, children, for the work of the ministry, amen, so that we can proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. That's our job, amen. We need to be trained. We need to be, we need to strive for excellence in reading, in studying, in prayer, in giving, in doing, in loving, in being together, all of those things need to be done with a heart that says, I love God, so I ought to do this. I love God, so I ought to do that. Amen? Because loving each other is exactly how the world will know that we're his disciples. That's what he said. This is how they will know that you're my disciples. The love that ye bear one for another. Yes, I memorized that in the King James, okay? <laughs> But we need to be trained. Abram's really smart. Look what he does. First of all, he pursues them to Dan, right? And then when he gets to Dan, he says, look, we're not going to defeat them with a straight-on attack in the middle of the day. So what we're going to do is we're going to wait for them all to get nice and comfy at night. And then we're going to split up our forces. He flanks them. It's a lot harder to fight on two fronts. Okay, it's really easy to, to just go straight ahead. Okay, boxing, it's really simple, very effective, can be very dangerous. But the minute that you throw in a ground game or legs, it changes everything. Now you have to worry about levels, different appendages you're fighting with, your feet. Different positions. Now I'm not just standing up fighting you. I got you on your back fighting you, right? Uh, let's think of other ways that two, fighting on two fronts is really, really difficult. It's, a, it's really easy for firefighters to fight a fire just on a single floor or a single level. But when it's more than one level and it's spread out farther, they have to attack it from multiple angles. Right? And this army, obviously, of these five kings, which only four of them fought in that battle, but these kings, Abram's like, I only got 318 men. I can't defeat them. So I'm going to wait till they go to sleep. And then I'm going to divide my force. And when they get up to attack this side, this side's going to be attacking too. And you know what happens? Those people run. And then Abram pursues them. Okay? The tide turned in one night by one man who was trained, who put real practical thought to saving his nephew. And that's what I'm telling you about our work to bring our brothers and sisters who are believers back into the church and to go and get other people. We have to do it in a way that we're trained and in a real practical way that we love them and want to win them, not just win arguments, not just uh, tally on the sheet, but because we love them, we care about them, and our intentions is to win them back. Amen? It has to be that way. We're not going to get anywhere if people don't feel that we're genuine, okay? Do you think Lot knew Abraham loved him? Huh. Yeah. Think about it, okay? 
Abram and 318 men go and fight four kings to save Lot. Pretty sure Lot was like, man, Abraham is the best. Right? The forces retreat. He pursues them. And it seems as if these people just leave their loot behind. Okay? I want you to go with me to uh, verse uh, well, let's read verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, uh, north of Damascus. Now, it just says they, they, they escaped, or it kind of leaves you thinking that they escaped. Then he brought back all the possessions, also... And he also brought back his kinsmen a lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram doesn't just save Lot and Lot's possessions, but he saves the women and all the other people too. So all the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah where these kings took captives, Abram saves everybody. Now, could this be a foreshadowing of Abram already being a blessing to the nations? I think it can be. I think it could be construed that way. Right? I will bless thee and make thee a blessing. Right? Your name shall be great. I'm pretty sure you've got a great name after you defeat five kings with 318 men. Pretty sure you got a pretty good name now. Right? I did want to bring up this because it was interesting when you read verse 17. I'm going to skip past the last point that I'm going to make for a second. It says, and after his return from the defeat of Kedalamor and the kings who were with him, I want to read it out of the King James because it gives you a different understanding when you hear the King James language right here, okay? I, now, I don't know if they wrote it this way on purpose, okay? But it's interesting. And there came, uh, excuse me, there we go. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedalamor. From the slaughter. Doesn't just say the defeat. The king James uses the word slaughter, okay? I'm assuming there's a reason for that. I don't know that it's extra biblical because I didn't really look it up. I just happened upon it while I was reading. I was like, this would be interesting. So uh, when I'm done, I'll look it up on my, uh, do you got a blue letter Bible? Do you got a lexicon on there? Oh, man, that's all right. I'll look it up when we're done. It'd be interesting to see if that Hebrew word really means slaughter or just defeat. Okay? It's interesting. Because if it means the one, if it means that he just defeated him, I mean, that's practical. He escaped, right? But where it leaves off and you don't know what happened to him, if, if it is slaughter, then that means Abram didn't just... Defeat them, he killed them all, 
right? So uh, that's interesting. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, good homework for you. <laughs> Find out. Uh, lastly, I wanted to notice uh, Abraham saves Lot, his possessions, and all the other people. So I want to give you just my thoughts on this real quick. Are you going to Blue Letter Bible and looking it up? Uh, Bible. Or Bi Bible Hub? Okay. I want to give you uh, four points from my perspective. Uh, what, ha what I see when I read this, first of all, Abraham here is foreshadowing his later heart for other people. His willingness to intercede and be concerned for his brother Lot and his well-being. I want you to understand that later on when Lot's in trouble again because God's going to come and send the angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abram. But Lord, if there's 50 righteous people, will you not spare the city? If there's 40, if there's 30, right? What do you got? To smite. Okay. And it is translated in the this NASB is translated defeat as well as it is Okay, okay. Well smite doesn't necessarily mean slaughter, okay? Now I think <coughs> I think the King James people were probably doing this for a clear understanding that they were utterly defeated, okay? Well, Well, that, it, so it could fit. It, it could fit, and slaughter could be applied, okay? So they were defeated, we know that, and they could have been slaughtered. Amen. Okay. Uh, getting back to the uh, pastor's thoughts here. Just, these are just my thoughts. I jotted them down when I was making notes. Uh, Abram here is foreshadowing his heart for other people as willingness to intercede. Later on, he intercedes for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He intercedes because of his nephew Lot. And he says, if, Lord, if there's 50 righteous, 40 righteous, what if there's 20? If the Lord, you know, don't strike me down or nothing, but what if there's 10? Now, here's the telling part of that. Abraham's heart, his willingness is to intercede, okay? And I'm telling you as people of God, for those we're seeking to, 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 to win, our heart must be, Lord, don't do this to them. Lord, save them. Lord, help them. Lord, open their eyes. It's got to be, we have to have hearts that are longing to see these people saved. Amen? That's got to be the heart of every believer, that every conversation that we have can't just be to win arguments. It must be with the attitude of, I want to win my brother, my sister, this lost person. Amen. Uh, also, Abram is, is very concerned, and it shows Abram's concern for his kinsman, for his nephew, right? It shows that he loves Lot and doesn't want Lot to come to an end this way. 
Now, for all that being said, there was obviously not ten righteous people in all of Sodom, all of Gomorrah, right? Wasn't even ten righteous people. And I could have already told you that if they would have read Romans chapter 1, 2, 3. <laughs> it wasn't wrote yet, okay? But the reality is we know why there wasn't ten righteous people. Because there's not one righteous person. No, not one. Amen? There's not one. If God, Abram, Abram uh, was still, must have been thinking in a moralistic sense, Lord, what if there's one righteous person? Right. Still didn't stop them being destroyed, did it? Still didn't stop the judgment of God. The law is not what brought the judgment of God. The Romans 1 deals with the very fact that God's greatness, his goodness, his, his, his attributes have been made known through all of creation. And man is without excuse before God. Amen? This is a perfect example. There's no law. There's nothing justly that would say, why is God doing this? But the reality is... From the creation of the world, God has made himself known. And all of his attributes, his goodness, his holiness, righteousness has been made known to all things in creation. Period. And they're without excuse. Right? Now, there wasn't ten righteous people. Amen? So we're not praying for righteous people. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Amen? Uh, second, we should also have a heart for our brothers' well-being, our neighbors' well-being, our fellow believers' well-being, and for the lost people around us' well-being. Amen? Not just a, a heart to see them one to Christ, which is the goal, which is the ultimate, only aim of our being here. Amen? But also for their well-being. Amen. It's not just to, to we, you know, if we just tell our brother, hey, you know, that's thirsty and hungry, I'll pray for you. And don't give him what he has need of when it's in our capacity to do so. Then we don't really love God and we don't really believe God. Amen. How can we love God and hate our brother? And in that context, he's saying not helping is a form of hatred when it's in our capacity to do so. Amen? Uh, three, others always benefit from those who seek the good of other people. Abram's actions were only that he would free Lot. But all those that were captured with Lot benefited from Abram's thought to help his brother. Amen? Others always benefit from a person who is not thinking about themselves, not thinking about their name, not thinking about their only aim is to help other people. Other people always benefit from that, that person. Amen? That type of person. Those rescued with Lot were beneficiaries of both Abram's concern, intercessory heart that loved 
Lot and his willingness to say, I'm going to go help my brother. Finally, Abram surely answers the question that I brought up from Genesis 4, 9, where Cain said, I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer, yes, you are. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you are your brother or your sister's keeper. You are. You're, if you're not concerned with your brother's well-being or your sister's well-being, whether it be physically your, your, your biological brother or sister or your, uh, more poignantly, your brother and sister in the faith, amen, if you're not concerned with their well-being, if you're not concerned spiritually, mentally, physically with their well-being, uh, I'm worried for you. Amen? We are our brother's keeper. Abram answers this question that Cain should have known. Do you realize that Cain, Cain heard the voice of God? You understand that. And the voice of God told Cain before he ever slew his brother that sin was crouching outside the door and it sought to overtake you. Right? This was said to Cain before he slew Abel. Amen? Why? Because God knows the heart of every human being. And at, at the core of this teaching, when, when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? He, what he's really saying is, I don't have to do that. There's no reason I have to. Am I my brother's keeper? In God's mind, yes. If you know what to do and you know what's right to do and you don't do it, the Bible says that's sin. Amen? We are our brother's keeper. We live around our neighbors. The Bible says there's two great commandments. What are they? Love God, love people. But that commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Right? The second is likened unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees asked that question. Who's my neighbor? The Pharisees had the heart of Cain. The Pharisees had the heart of Cain that says, am I my brother's keeper? Their concern was not for their brother, but for their own well-being and for their own good to avenge their own lusts of their own flesh just like Cain but here Abram shows the very character that we that he's lauded for in Hebrews 11 the reason that he's even mentioned amen is that character that was willing to give everything and follow God to a country to a place where he didn't know Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you tonight to help us. Help us to be more in tune with our neighbors, with our loved ones, with those whom we 
join together with that church whom we pray for and care for. God, help us to do more. Help us to seize more opportunities to be our brothers and our sisters keeper. God, I pray that you would give us a heart for the lost, for those who are perishing without Christ. Let us hold wholeheartedly to this understanding that we are called to be intercessors. We are called to love and care for those around us. Not just with their physical and monetary needs, God, but with the truth of the gospel as well which is the only hope that any person ever has, and that is Jesus and his work. Lord, we, help, we ask that you would help us to continue to help us to grow, change us, mold us, and shape us, that we would live for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.